I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo, and we have we have just Eddie. It's Teddy Sauer. Needed to France. Eric Marie. It's Mahi Drysdale. It is Sir Matthew Vincent. Thank you for being here. I'm Alex Del Sordo with Rowers Choice, and this is another round of podcasts. And uh, we got this woman on the schedule. Oh gosh, a couple weeks ago, and. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest, it's it's rowing royalty. She might not think so. She's been around since the 1970s. The 1970s. And she coached programs at the highest level, sometimes at the lowest level. She has experienced racing at every possible experience in rowing, from the high school, collegiate, to international racing. And it's rare to have a chance to hear someone who's been around for multiple decades. And I am very lucky, and we are very lucky. People watching, we're going and listening. We're going to hear about her story, where she took her first stroke, like we always do, all the way to where she is today at Bear Hill Rowing. And then we're going to get into, which is the topic and in in, in what we're doing this season, is what it has been like. What changes have we seen as American rowers from the 1970s to today in training? So much has happened. You, you've had the invention of, of oars. You've had boats shifting from wood to carbon and, and fiberglass. So I'm really excited about this conversation. And we have Holly Hatton from Bear Hill Rowing Association. Holly, thank you for taking the time today. Hey, Alex. I, I hate to say it, but it makes me feel old, the introduction. So uh, and I try not to think that at all in my whole overall perspective of myself. So, uh, but yes, got a lot of, lot of, um, lot of uh, miles under the, uh, under the uh, oar. Well, you know what, that's, I, you know what, I think I, I, would, I would, if I were you, I'm embracing it because you have more experience than almost everyone I've ever interviewed. And we're at 103. So that's a lot. I mean, that's well, a lot. Well, I don't know, maybe Larry Gluckman, you know, had more, but anyway. But well, anyway. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that, right? So, yeah. so Holly, how old were you and where were you when you took that first rowing stroke? So, yeah, it was, it, so I went to college in Philadelphia, more college of art and design. And, um, Actually, my first job out of college, so 22 years old, um, I was, uh, I worked with a woman who, um, I was a, uh, in an advertising agency, a large one in Philadelphia, and um, the lowest of the low on the art directors, and one of the copywriters uh, was part of College Boat Club, which at the time was the rowing program that encapsulated any women in the university. So Bar Barbara actually uh, was an employee, um, but it had a mix of undergraduates, employee, in other words, this is where the women rode, right? The, the, um, the uh, undergraduate program had not started yet. So anyway, long story short, when she invited me to a party, I met some of her friends, I kind of liked them. I knew about rowing on the Charles, but I mean, on the, on the Schuylkill, but I um, honestly was always just an armchair athlete. I loved, absolutely loved sports. Never missed an Olympics as a kid, but, and, and liked to play them, but was never, you know, it wasn't part of my deal. I was more into, into art. And so long, anyway, she, I introduced her friends. They said they were gonna start this lightweight rowing program. And at, the, at that time, you know, I was a skinny 110 pounder and, um, uh, this sound like I like these people so I was like yeah why not so I went down to the the river and sort of started this little process and um, it was in the I think in the winter probably February and it, you know so it was kind of weight training at that point and um, 
honestly, after a couple of weeks, I, I realized very quickly that this probably wasn't for me because I wasn't really a physical masochist, right? I just wasn't going to, but I was the lightest of the quote lightweights and they um, needed a coxswain for, uh, God, it was the 73 national champion. I don't remember what race it was. Anyway, it was on the Schuylkill. And um, so they asked me, hey, would you cox the boat? And of course I knew nothing. Yeah, yeah. But I was game, right? Because I like these people. It was fun. And I found it, a, I actually found coming out of work and going to the river was a mental. I found it was a good distraction, lowered my stress level. So I said, what, why not? So I jumped in a boat. I don't know. I seriously, I don't know. It might've been two weeks after I said this and they had me coxing this bait on the Schuylkill river. I knew nothing. The stroke told me everything to say every word, but immediately what I recognized was I was a mental masochist. Okay. I loved pushing people. I love being part of that. And so that's where it started. And I just kind of kept with it and um, went on and was with College Boat Club uh, and then eventually shifted over to Vesper uh, in 1978. Um, I was, well, 1977, I went to my first camp. So, and that was a weird thing because I kind of given up on the whole rowing scene after trying out for the 75 and 76 teams, uh, you know, kind of went into the, the into the pool at, at uh, you know, to, in Boston, um, Harry Parker was the coach and didn't make it through. Um, I was also older than most of the coxswains because at that point, the other few were for, still in college. So it was like, mm, you know, well, I'm not gonna make it. So I actually got fairly discouraged after 76 and accepted a job in um, in Florida as a graphic design, as the uh, art director for University of Tampa. I just as a quick one. I grew up in Florida, so that's why I ended up gravitating back there. And um, I uh, did it for a year. I was I ended up being the rowing coach there. We won the state championships in a four. It was it was crazy, you know. Just all these things kind of fell in place. And, Holly, Holly, hold on. This is I'm, I'm like. <laughs> your story is okay let's 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 take a pause let's take a pause. okay like uh, i'm gonna take a deep breath because <laughs> you're you're talking about well something that's really cool let me just point something out to listeners here um you were not a high school rower you were not a high school um a college rower you, you found it at a party in philadelphia yeah and and how welcoming is that that's beautiful right that is yeah. so cool like and I don't want to call you a master's rower, right? Because at the time there really wasn't, it wasn't a word to describe a 22 year old rower, right? Yeah. Like you're a rower, but now it's like, if you're after college, you're a master's rower, right? Or you're trying for the Olympic team. You said you were an armchair athlete. You were, you soaking wet 110 pounds and you were in Philadelphia in the seventies. And, and that is some of that, that, that's when Philadelphia rowing really started to grow and really exploded, right? Yeah. You had some you had some amazing athletes in and around you, but you said you got discouraged. So like, what was discouraging? Was it the fact that you were older than everybody else, that you weren't qualified enough? Like, where was the discouragement in the 1970s in, in Philadelphia? Where was it coming Certainly from? Certainly not in Philadelphia. I didn't get discouraged with Philadelphia. Um, uh, I had a great experience there. Uh, and I moved on to... 
uh, Best for Boat Club, John Hooten, all the, you know, Anita de France. I was in the glory days of rowing there. Yeah. But, um, then we went off to, they had the first selection camps, right? In 75 and 76 in Boston and Harry Parker ran those. So, you know, um, John said, hey, it was uh, Sue uh, Morgan Hooten uh, and um, Laura uh, Dodoslovich. They en ended up rowing the pair in the 76 Olympics. Yeah. Um, anyway, he sent the three of us off to Boston, said, you guys should go try out. So I went through the 75 camp, you know, the, um, I mean, obviously being coached by Harry, uh, very different uh, situation in that he doesn't say much and you just kind of were out there you know, and doing, doing your thing and not getting a ton of feedback. So, uh, and then I came back to Vesper and then 76, I thought, well, I'll give it one more try. Um, at this point, what, I'm 24 years old or something like that. And I think, well, I got to get back. I got to keep going this career on. So I did get discouraged after not being selected in 76. And so I decided to move to uh, Florida. Uh, there was a, there was a position open um, and you know, it was ahead of their graph, their uh, publications department at the University of Tampa. A rowing connection had given me the the lead, so I went down there. I thought, oh, go back to Florida. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, so in nineteen in nineteen seventy six, you're you're around, you're, you're this the the rude and smooth crew, right? You got this yeah. like Harvard, you know, this, this insane growth of now. You went to the next best area of rowing, right? You're 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 around arguably one of the most successful collegiate coaches of all time. Yep. You get discouraged. Um, I totally understand that that stinks not getting any feedback. I mean, that, that is, that is a death sentence for like type A individuals, right? If you're not getting feedback, you're dying. <laughs> uh, so what, like your parents, were they encouraging you to do this? Cause that's a big stop in your career, right? Taking some yeah. time off to go. What was the, what was the uh, encouragement or not encouragement from your family? To do this uh they were kind of out of the picture i'll be, be honest with you at this point you know i'm an adult i'm kind of making my own way um and, and you know i would keep them posted but but it was more friends actually some of my art friends were the ones who kind of really kept saying hey this is great you should stay involved and i think they saw the the um the whole sort of the change in me dynamically uh as far as what I loved about it, I loved it. I mean, it was, I was absolutely passionate about it right from the get-go. I mean, I remember going over to watch the 1974 Worlds in Lucerne. I mean, I'd been involved with rowing for like a year, but I was like so keen on it. It was the first big trip for me to Europe. I didn't, I mean, I wasn't involved in any team or anything. I just wanted to go watch it, right? Camped out the whole bit. It was, it was just really cool. Holly, you are like, you're a trip. You are so cool. Um, <laughs> it's, like, it's like so cool to go. You're like, hey, I, I, I found rowing like a year ago and let's go to Lucerne and let's travel 5,000 miles and camp out. I mean, that's just, that's so cool. Um, I'm like geeking out now. So even let me, one more little quick one like that. So, so once the 76 Olympic team was selected, uh, there are a couple, there were some best for women on it, the Jonic sisters. And um, so a bunch of us from Philly drove up. We stayed in a gravel pit. <laughs> it was the guy opened up the land and let people park in there and we, you know, for a space. And the Jonic brothers had their van there and they had a, a TV hooked up to a ba the battery of the car. We could watch the rowing. The Jonics would come by and drop off some, you know, 
bananas and stuff they got from the village. And seriously, it was crazy times, crazy times. Dude, like, I think that I was born 20 years too late. I mean, that is, oh gosh. I think any rower listening to this, especially like rowers in their 30s and 40s, are so envious of that time in, in American rowing, right? Yeah. It was new. I mean, it's it's fresh and new, right? And I, and I think you agree with me. Like rowing yeah. from the 50s and 60s really was like a really weird time. And then 70s comes around. You have the Dresser Gracker brothers, right? You're, you're, yeah. you're building this you're building the industry of rowing in the 70s and 80s and you're smack dab in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, another fun story, you know, Jim Dietz was down there at Vesper. He he would organize, he was very into the, and you know, New York AC uh, track guys and Emlyn Coughlin, who was then an Irish guy running for, you know, for the Miracle Mile. We would all pile in the car and drive up to Madison Square Garden for the Milrose game. So we get there by eight o'clock for the, for the mile, everybody from Vesper would, you know, road trip up there to watch this, these guys run in the, um, in, you know, indoor mile. Uh, it was just, it was wild. It was a great, great, uh, for me, you know, totally different social experience. I'd gone to an all women's college, art, you know, the whole thing, whole different direction. Don't get me wrong. I still was very passionate about being an artist, but this whole, this was a whole new dynamic to me. And, and I, connected with it right away. You know, so um, a while ago, I had interviewed Nick Lee Parker, the head coach of Columbia. And he, a uh, musician, artist, uh, and he focused uh, music specifically. And he said to me that rowing is a mirror image of, of the arts. And it takes a dedication, it takes practice, it takes focus. And he said that like the way the, the, the mind works, there's so much of that connection between arts and and rowing and training um and and that's just so funny so it, there's it, there is a connection and i and i i totally yeah. understand. um i just uh so i'm thinking how did i get to be a coxswain having gone to art school but here's one thing we had to do in art school ever we would be we would have assignments we'd have to create something we'd be given two to three weeks to do it in between we would every week we would meet and you know talk about our project with the professors then on the third week we would have to present what we called a wall and we would put up our artwork and basically sell it or explain it to our classmates and the professor on why this was working or be criticized for why it wasn't working. So you're standing in a public forum having to defend yourself. And honestly, I really credit that with this transition to being a coxswain because it's all the same. You have to stand in a public forum. You have to either lead or take criticism publicly. And I think that that really prepared me for moving into that position in a, in a fairly solid way. I, 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 you know what? I've never been a coxswain, but I, I've criticized and applauded many coxswains in my day. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So, all right, let's get back to the story. You go down yeah. to Tampa. You coach there. You win a state championship in the four. Um, what? 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 Where? Where do you go next? What do you do? How long are you in Florida? What? What happens next? So I'm literally there for little. I go since September, and in May I get a pink slip. They discontinued the position. I do know that there's a selection camp that's just started in Wisconsin. Um, Jay Mimier, who was the coach at Wisconsin, was the coach for the women's eight. 
And a friend of mine called me up and said, Holly, you gotta, you gotta come to the camp. We need, we need another coxswain here. They're all really inexperienced. I think you do it, get, get on a plane, call Jay. So I called them up and I said, look, I know you started a couple of days ago, but could I come? And you know, I don't know if you know Jay at all, but he's a very low key guy and goes, well, it's your money. <laughs> like, okay. So I bought a plane ticket. I mean, I had no job, right? I brought, bought a plane ticket. I flew out to Wisconsin. I jumped into this camp and I got selected to be the coxswain for the women's eight in 1977. 19, what year was this? 77. 1977, year after Olympics are gone. Yeah. America's celebrating. It's, uh, you know, 1976. America's celebrating. We're having a grand old time, 200 yeah. years. Um, you're in Wisconsin. You get selected <laughs> for the eight. This is the summer, right? So this yeah. is now yeah. like the summer. Um, where did you guys race? How, how did you do? Like what happened that, that summer? <laughs> oh, it's my, my, my blazing glory here. So there were only seven eights. We went race in Amsterdam. There were only seven eights at the world championships. And we were the one crew that did not race in the finals. <laughs> the entire world championships. Entire world championships that did not race on finals day. Because it, it was the only event that did not, only had seven entries. Yeah, someone in the boat caught a crab. We, yeah, it was, yeah. All right, you catch a crab, 1977. You're, you're getting into the fall. Like, you're, 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 you're clearly caught the rowing bug. You know, you yeah. love it. You, you can't yeah. get enough of it. What, what happens next in your career? So I've gone, I, I go back to Vesper and we train hard and Hooten's the coach and we get selected as the four um, with Anita de France and Nancy Storrs, Cos Crawford and uh, Carol Brown. Uh, it's in New Zealand. I also get selected to, we take a smaller team because of New Zealand um, and I cox the eight and the four. Uh, we go off uh, the eight, misses by a little bit fourth the four silver medal um the conditions in in uh at lake carapira were atrocious at that point when it was such high winds that they had this pop-up buoy this is be forget they didn't appear for a while right but those those little holders at the on the bow this was a pop-up buoy that sat at the bow seat that the person in the bow would hold on to because the wind was so strong, it was not, you were not able to keep the boat straight just by tapping it. So we're sitting on the starting line and it was so long to get it started. Of course, they should have waited, but they had the TV, go, you know, the hour, blah, blah, blah. They want to run it. So um, at some point, Carol Brown got so tired of trying to manage all this stuff that she had brought it into the boat brought the buoy into the boat and, and off we go. And of course it's star, they start and the buoy gets jammed inside the boat. We literally take a power 10 off to the side. It was just crazy. So we're like DFL, we're trying to regroup and get into it. But here's what happens. The Russians, have you heard about the boat where they had the coxswain in the middle of the boat? No. Yeah, yeah. well, look, look for that one. I've seen a picture floating around. They built an, a four where the coxswain sat in the middle so they could row, um, you know, they could always have oars in the water. They separated the stern, yeah, crazy times. So uh, 
long, so the race is going on, the East Germans are way out ahead, but they catch a crab. We're five, okay. it's only a thousand meters, right? So not a lot of time. They catch a crab. So it's so bad that they had to stop. And in the meantime, because of this such strong wind, it blew them into the Canadian, I think it was the Canadians lane and they collided. So the race is called, we're way back. We're like back there at 250 gone, you know, <laughs> power 10 off starboard side kind of thing. It's crazy. So um, they rerun the race. They pull up, brought everybody in and it was decided, they asked the, the countries to vote on whether they exclude the East German and they did. So um, am I getting the country wrong? I'm East German, wrong. I don't know. Anyway, they were excluded. We got to race again and we were silver, we won a silver medal. Holly, we, I did have the, we did have the fastest time in the heat, okay. but the final, so it wasn't like we weren't fast. It was just yeah, yeah. thing that- You had a buoy, you had a buoy inside your boat. I just want to point something out. I, so the, you know, all the people that listen to this podcast, every single one of them is going to be Googling Russian middle yeah. coxswain, but like, like right now, everybody is. And like, if it wasn't for the fact that I'm doing this interview right now with you, I would be doing it. Like, I don't want to be distracted because that is the most absurd thing I've ever heard. There's a picture my- floating around of that too. I've seen it on, I think I saw it on Road 2K at one point. But anyway, so that's the story. And then wow. uh, silver medal there, the, the aid was fourth. Uh, we had to actually put a double fin on the boat because we could. I could not keep it straight. We were literally, the wind was so strong. We literally traveled down the course at a, at a diagonal. Um, and we had two fins on the boat plus the rudder in order to try to keep it going straight. Uh, and this is wooden boats, Casper, you know, the Casper boats. So, um, but it was a, let me tell you, it was an amazing trip. It was, you know, Tiff yeah. Wood got into knitting and he, he knitted a scarf that lasted, it was like the length of the entire bus because we had an hour and a half trip every day from the town to the course. And everybody got into knitting, and the guys were literally using like you know, inch wide n- needles to try to do this knitting thing. So he had like this I don't know like a potholder wide thing he was knitting, and I think it, it by the end it it was the length of, of a, a commercial bus. It was crazy. You know, I, I, like look, I, like rough and tough Tiff Wood, like the yeah. guy who is the strongest, toughest son of a gun on the planet. I could see this man just do like knitting. Like this is. Your stories are incredible, Holly. I'm learning so much about the 1970s that I didn't know actually existed. All right, so let's like- So we move on. Let's move on. I, ca- I get selected at Cox the Eight. Corzo's our coach. We went to the Worlds uh, in um, <clears throat> Yugoslavia and um, Lake Bled. And had we were the first women's aid to go under three minutes for a thousand meters in the heat. So it was looking pretty, pretty wild. Um, and then we had a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a glitch during the race and um, ended up with a bronze medal. But it was a great race. I mean, it, I hadn't, I have to tell you, I've never felt, uh, you could just feel the speed in this boat, which I had never felt in an AP4. Now we're in an MPOCR, which is pretty cool, you know. And then um, I go on to the selection for 1980, obviously, we are, you know, the boycott starts to happen. That's a whole nother podcast. I wouldn't even, don't even go into it. But uh, the, 
the sweep team, most of us decided to stay, hang in there and stay with it, hoping that something would change and we would ultimately go to the Olympics. Uh, Chris is still our coach. We get in the eight in um, Lucerne and it just, it, it flew. It was so, it felt so amazing. And um, we, if you, Lucerne regatta was a two day regatta. I don't know how it operates now, but you race two different times. You had, and so the first day we, again, this is a thousand meters. We, um, we beat these Germans three tenths of a second. I don't know, it was pretty close. Uh, but this was the first Western crew to ever beat Eastern Bloc in the eight. The so we had this move at the 500 meter mark. So that night, of course, the Easties come out and practice. They got, they got caught. We were behind and then we made this big move and then moved through them. They, and the next day, they beat us by about the same margin, three tenths. And of course they went on to, uh, to the Olympics and won the gold medal. We went home. And so, yeah. Yo. Unreal. So then, okay, so you're, you're spending your late twenties. Yeah chasing this this dream this bug that you have right um when when do you make it a career because like you know when when do you coach when do you make this thing like your focus <laughs> well at, at that point i had had to i had stopped uh my position had um the advertising agency had lost some clients so they let several of us go and so i had been freelancing in philadelphia at that point and at, and so um I then had to move to Boston in order to do the whole 80 thing and um, lived in the upstairs uh, well boathouse. They had like, there's a third floor apartment up there. Uh, it, you know, God, it, it, you know, whole nother stories, but we, uh, we just, you know, there was no money. No one was supporting us. We we're just doing our thing. And um, so essentially what I was doing is coaching the women who were in Boston. Uh, and then we would go to these various, speed order races and whatever. You had to race a pair, you know, and, and um, obviously earth testing and whatever. But um, after that, uh, there was a coach on the team, uh, an assistant coach on the team, and he was looking for a novice coach at Boston University. And I was adrift at that point because I had left all my clients behind. I had certainly nothing in Boston established as far as being a, a graphic designer. I mean, I was really kind of, and the boycott had really left me completely dazed and confused sure. with you. And um, so I was, hey, he, you know, Stuart said, hey, got this position open, would you like to? So I, I jumped into it. And I sort of, I gave myself, I said, well, maybe I'll do this. I'll give myself five years. I figure it's gotta probably take about five years to evolve as a, as a rowing coach. Um, I didn't really count the Tampa thing because that was just jump in and yeah. jump out, right? And, and so, um, you know, the first year was a little shaky. And then the second, it, this was before NCAA. So um, you actually could take novice crews to a national championship. They had all different events then. And so I think the second or third year I talked to take uh, the Boston BU novices to nationals and we won the national championship. So that kind of sealed the deal. What? <laughs> I was like, well, I guess I'm doing okay at this. Yeah, thing. like, who, who the heck are you, Holly Hatton? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I went down to Florida. I was there for like eight months. We won the state championship. No big deal. And then I'm arguably in the fastest women's eight in history. And then I'm jumping in Boston U. And two years in, we win the state, the national championship. Like this is, 
this doesn't happen to a lot of people. You know that, right? Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's funny. I, you know, I think all athletes um, will say, even athletes and coaches will say that they, they uh, dwell more on the losses and less on the wins. Right. And so it's not something that I kind of have a, I don't think a lot about it. I want to just get on to the next time and see if I can create, give the athletes that I'm coaching the opportunity to do their best. And obviously over the years, <clears throat> you know, when you go from college and then you go to the Olympic level and then now back at high school, they're the whole, um, the goals change. Um, and so, yeah, so BU and then uh, uh, Radcliffe opened up as a novice coach and I came, I came in, uh, Lisa Stone was there and was leaving, Liz O'Leary came in. Uh, I was there for 13 years. We had, we had a good run there. And, and then the Boston University varsity program opened up, a varsity coach opened up in, um, I'm gonna lose track of the years, 2008, is it? Nine, eight, yeah. Um, and then I, I applied for that and took that on. And I was there for 13 years. So when did you start at uh, Bear Hill Rowing, where you currently are today? Well, yeah, I mean, I, it's long past now, but you know, I was at BU and they this decided to make a few changes in their financial you know, support of various things. And so the rowing coaches went bye-bye. And, um, <clears throat> and so, I mean, they, they basically needed to find ways to move us out in order to change up their budgeting. And so both Rodney and I were, uh, you know, given our pink slips. So I sat around for about a year trying to figure out what, oh, and this was a, a, right at the recession, 2008, you know, it was when no one was hiring. It was, it was tough. So what I did was I decided, well, maybe you gotta get your button gear and figure out how to be a designer on, because I didn't really have any computer background with design work. It all been done by hand. And so I went back and took courses at Mass um, Art and Design and just tried to immerse myself back into trying to give myself some new skills. Um, and in the meantime, I just volunteered at Cambridge Engine Latin, who's you know on the Charles, I live in Cambridge. And okay. so I enjoyed it. It was fun working with these kids. And, um, and then um, a couple of the guys that I had known while I was, they were rowers while I was coaching at, at Harvard. They, they were now out in Harvard, Massachusetts and part of this Bear Hill Rowing Association. And they reached out, they, they knew that I was a bit, you know, looking around and I had, I was applying for jobs here left and right and stuff. And, um, and I had applied for this position, but I not, knew nothing about it. Da, da, da. I just had a lot of resumes out there and they called me up and said, Hey, come interview. And so I'm now at the point where unemployment's going to run out. And I think, okay, well, this is, I'll do this for a year filler with the hope that the colleges will the recession will you know, ease off and people yeah. will start hiring again. And this is just a filler. And so I went out and they hired me as the varsity girls coach. Uh, I actually asked them not to pay me at that point because I was getting more on unemployment than I would have, they would have paid me. And I said, well, wait till my unemployment runs out and then you can pay me a chunk. So, you know, we, again, I came in and um, coached the girls. Uh, and of course I had another, bit of success 
and I shouldn't say of course, I had some success and the girls won state championships that spring. And, and what year was that? I, yeah. What year was that? Uh, God, 2000, oh my God, I can't remember. Um, I have to do a little research on that. <laughs> it would have been 2010, uh, 10, something like that. Um, so then I went, uh, so then they came back to me and said, well, we, we really want you to stay. And I said, well, at this point, I, I really try to, I've got to make a living. And um, so they decided to re, you know, th thankfully they had been in the college rowing world and they had a good perspective on what um, they wanted for this program. They were trying to take it to a new level. And so they kind of said, well, what is the, what is the bottom line? You could come back and stay with us and be, you know, what's your range? Sure. So I kind of gave them a range and come in as a program director and they, they met the bottom. And I thought, okay, well, still no college jobs are knocking. And so uh, uh, I'll do this for another year. And then <clears throat> I just stayed with it, you know, just sort of made the shift. What I started to realize is um, the NCAs had come up at that point, probably were into six or seven years of it at that point. And, and uh, the coach, the, the recruitment level of the intensity of that was getting more and more and more. Um, and obviously we'd have a, we had a, you'd have a coach that would primary job would do that for you, but you're very much a part of it as the head coach. And it was, um, I didn't like that part of it. I just didn't like that part of the coaching. Uh, what, what, what about that? What about, what about that? Don't you like on the recruiting side? You're, you're trying, you know, you're trying to sell them something that, um, you hope will be a positive, uh, they want to embrace. But at that point, there were the, you know, the very top crews, and then, then there was this level. There's a much more of a diverse, I think a diversity now, meaning spread out the, the, the uh, uh, speed of crews is spread out instead of being at the top five there, you know, now we have top 20. Mm -hmm. And so it was very difficult to, to lock into that, to get, one of those top rowers to come into your program. And um, uh, I found it that, that trying to sell that to these top kids was always a little bit discouraging because you knew they were gonna you know, go off to, at that point, the Ivies were still really at the top of the game. Sure. And, you know, and, so, and, and obviously Washington was there kind of by themselves. I mean, it was a pretty rarefied group of, of programs that were at the top. Now it's really, you know, that's changed dramatically over the so years. Do you still follow, so do you still follow the NCAA and, and, and the, the fastest teams in the country? I, I certainly watch them. I watch them actually, I watch them for, um, for, I watch them technically, you know, to watch who's rowing, how they're rowing, what's rowing. I'll try to get a clip off of, even if it's something that's being, uh, you know, the live feed from the NCAs, and I see a crew that I really like how they're rowing. I might try to, you know, I'll take my camera and and I'll I'll do a little copy just to show my athletes what uh, what I'd like to see them look at. Here's what I like. Here's what I'm looking for technically, um, and I don't I don't follow it to the level that I certainly used to, but um, I, I watch it for uh, 
but coaches are still hanging in there and you know yeah. making crews go fast and sort of my the gang that I knew when I was coaching and um, yeah. So you you so before we transition into the difference in training, I mean, do you do you love the coach? Just you just love coaching in general. It doesn't really it doesn't necessarily matter who you're coaching, right? Because I, I I've done high school coaching. And I love making an impact on the young kids. And at your position, at your level, I think you make such a, a more bigger impact on the 13 to 17 year olds than you do 19 to 22. Maybe you, maybe I'm wrong, but I no, like no, I, I, I totally agree with you. But I had to make that. I have to say, I had to make that switch. I mean, one thing I didn't talk about is during that time, I also was coaching on the national team. You know, so I was it, it, 73 was the first time I coached the pair. I moved on. Um, uh, 85, I was the coach of the eight. And, and I, I, I moved into, uh, I'm sorry, not 85, um, 89, uh, yeah, 85, yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, I was coached on, I coached the uh, pair on the 88 Olympic team, and then again on the 92. And they won a, they won a bronze medal in that, in that. But that was sort of my last foray into international coaching. Mm -hmm. uh, and as much as I, the intensity of it. I, I do miss that part. I do. I did like that kind of being on the edge, but here's to answer your question. So, you know, the sports writer, John Powers, who he's with the Boston Globe. He no. the Boston Globe. Anyway, he, um, he called me after I shifted into high school rowing. Um, he was also calling me really every time there's a mention of a boycott, someone calls me. <laughs> Because I was involved quite a bit in protesting the boycott. Okay. So someone, uh, you know, I always get a call from somebody. So he had called me for, I think it was China at this point. Um, and so he says, oh, I see you're coaching high school now. How do you feel about that? And I was probably two or three years into it. And I said, well, John, you know, at first I really thought this was just something to fill time. Mm. I totally thought I would go back to college coaching or wherever, but at a higher level. But as I settled into it and kind of let it, just accept the fact that this is where I was, um, I realized, and exactly what you just said, I can make a bigger impact on someone in the beginning of their rowing career than I, I really did at the, let's say the peak or towards the end of their career. Because at that point, you're just, you're out, you're out of the way and you're just making sure they have, they have the tools. Because honestly, they're not going to win medals at an international level if they don't have the skill set and the desire, they don't have the drive to get it done. I don't think any coach can really inspire someone to row at a level of that, that level uh, can, can be the catalyst. It really has to be so from, it has to come from the athlete. And your job is to just make sure you don't screw up the training. You know, you, you, you help them tweak the technique and just get out of the way and, and hope that they uh, um, are motivated enough to, to really go for it. And I, I like that. I like that lesson for like any coach out there, just get out of the way. Um, so let's talk, let, let's get into the, let's get into the second half of this. Um, You've you've seen training from from Vesper in in the 75, 74 era in the seventy eight where 
rowing was just like, who's the toughest SOB on the water? You are pulling your butt off. And, and a lot of those, a lot of the training and erg pieces that we see from like the early 2000s came from that era, the yeah. five by 1500s, uh, the three by 20. Um, so like how much change have you seen in training the athletes specifically on the erg and on the land from the seventies to today? Like what big shifts have you seen in those? Well, 40 I, I think it has, it has shifted dramatically. First of all, the odometer was, you know, there was the seat, the C2, remember, the, the very first one was just like a bicycle chain and whatever. And that's 1980. Yeah. You know, the first crash BEs that was held at, um, at Newell Boathouse was the, Oh, the wheel that looked spoke with spokes in it and you know had a chain on it and you so I think that the whole I I certainly when I was involved it was really about how you could it was all about the rowing portion of it it was really the you know how hard you trained on the water how much you could pull the boat and you're right there were a lot of hammers in there you know if you you, you got it you had some just people who pulled crazy hard I would say until um, we, I really got with, uh, with when we started being coached by Chris Korzanowski, did, did we really start to row because his thing was all about technique. And I think that that was what put uh, certainly the women's eight in, in 1980 poised to hope, you know, to potentially win a gold medal Olympics because they, we, we rowed so well together. You look at some of the images from that crew and it's just, it's textbook. It, every person in that boat is rowing at us at a, an excellent at a level of you know that that you can't find a flaw in it um so, so pre-1980 so pre-1980 was like hammers you're just, you just you just pull hard right you know i don't know the borshell brothers they were called the heater brothers they just pulled hard you know they rode the pair and they i mean i it was like it was just crazy uh, you'd see a pair going down the uh, down the course that the guys were like scissors, right? You'd see their bodies. That, uh, <laughs> but the thing is, they would they. I'm not talking about the Borschelts at this point, but I remember a pair with like that. And um, you would go, well, how did how are they not falling out of the boat? And yet every every mistake they were doing, only were counterbalanced by the other person, right? It was just about pulling hard, and and also some of that was about the equipment, right? You're moving a much heavier boat. You've got a wooden oar that um, has a tremendous amount of flex in it. So if you didn't pull hard, you weren't going to go anywhere because there was so much, the, the oar was so dynamic at that point. You know, there, you, the oar wasn't helping you do anything. It was just pulling the boat along. Um, so now, these darn rowers today have no idea how hard it was in the 1970s and 80s. And you're hauling a boat around that weighs I don't know, 300 pounds, 350, who knows yeah. what. And an oar that probably weighed, what, 40 pounds, right? I mean, those things are heavy as can be. Yeah. Um, but I think that the, certainly what's evolved over the years, obviously, even for the national team, the whole chain, uh, you know, financial support, the training, being in training camps uh, to the point where you work part-time, you would have O jobs, all of that stuff dramatically changed how much time you could put into the sport, and we all—I think we all know that the the cardiovascular um, system has to be at its peak to to be a successful rower. And you had to put miles and miles of of you know steady state into your training in order to even get there. Um, for and so, 
we didn't have that kind of luxury at that point. Everybody had full-time jobs. She took off for a weekend to go to a, you know, to a, a, a selection and uh, the training, though, though people back then trained, don't get me wrong. It was uh, cramming it in, you know, six to 7.30 before you went to work kind of stuff. But, and there, the, it wasn't really till about 1980 that even a training, national training program kind of came along. There were some can, um, uh, training centers established. There was one out in Washington, uh, Midwest, Boston, that kind of stuff. So, so the focus started to become more of a national interest. And that obviously that was to, to basically try to recruit more athletes to get involved. So let's take, a, let's take a snapshot really quick. So describe the differences between the 1980 crew that was lightning fast and the week of training there versus a week of training that you did at BU in 2006, 2007? Like what, what differences do you see in training in that 20 something year difference? Hmm, that's a hard one because it's a college college program. And, and but I, I think that the, actually the training might've been fairly similar, oddly enough, because college rowing ramped up and ramped up and ramped up. And so the level of training at the college level, it, it, I mean, if you look at our, our what, U23 just went one gold in the eight, right? And it's just that level of training in college has gotten to the point where it's just below the national team. And the only reason it's just below that is because you've got the 20 hours that the NCAA puts on college athletes, though we know that there's a lot more hours spent outside that 20. Um, but I think that um, I have to be honest with you. I have the training. So when, when Chris Korzanowski was the um, technical director back in the early eighties, he would send out these monthly training programs that they would be published. It was actually a paper, you know, you got it in the mail. It was a, it was a supplement and um, I still use them today. Cause I think the principles really don't change. It's just that you, you find you have this amount of uh, work you need to do at 60%, this amount of work you do at eight, you know, it doesn't change. It's just the volume has increased. That's where I think it's changed. I don't think the workouts necessarily have changed the type of workouts, what, you know, how many strokes you take. It's just that the volume of strokes has just doubled or tripled. So this is a, a, a hot topic that I've, I've been recently asking people. Um, I, I had the privilege of interviewing um, some of the greatest like Pinson, right? And, and Redgrave, and then you have Eric Murray. And I had asked like, who would win in a race? You know, if they were at their peaks today, what about like the night, this 1980 crew? If this 1980 crew was rowing in a brand new Empocker with brand new concept two oars or Croker oars, was that crew tougher and stronger than some of the national team crews you see today? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think, I think we could have taken them on thousand meters. You know, if we were in, if you, if you could take us back to our, that age, that yep. time, yep. and you literally could put it, you know, the meadow, the, the, uh, you know, put it out there in the, in space yep. and we lined up against one of the eights today. I absolutely think we could have taken them on. That is so cool. I love that. I mean, you've seen it. I mean, you've, you've experienced it. So this is so interesting. So you go back to Chris Korzanowski's handouts and you still use them today, 30 
40 years later, you're still using those same principles that were built back then. And you saying the only major difference is volume, yeah. right? That's the only difference. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think, um, okay, this is old school for me, but I, I think that the emphasis on the erg and the performance on the erg is, uh, I think, I, I just think it's too much. I'd much rather see someone, you know, because we also know that that doesn't necessarily um, translate to moving the boat. There is that individual who can, uh, wasn't the, that German guy that, you know, was, had the fastest world championship, uh, fastest er, er time for a while, three to four years, crash bees. He never made the national team, German national team, or maybe the pair with, I don't yep. remember. But it doesn't always translate. And it, what does it build for you? Certainly, I think it builds mental toughness. It certainly is a great vehicle for training. Um, but I, it seems to me that uh, many coaches use that as their primary tool for selection. And I don't. So do you think there's a, do you think there's a difference between mental toughness in a boat and mental toughness on an erg? Um, I do. I mean, unfortunately, I, I've seen it. Uh, I've seen, um, you know, and I don't um, know if this is more of a gender issue or not. But, um, and I think today's certainly athletes uh, have, certainly if you're going at the national team level, have um, done such hard work by the time you get to the selection process that you're there because you're tough as nails. But certainly I saw it back when, when I was part of the um, uh, coaching staff and helping out with selection. And I would see athletes that um, I knew were significant boat movers have a hard time on the erg. The performance level was never at its best. Uh, and I don't, the anxiety of it, who knows? And certainly you talk to any, you talk to any high school coach, um, you know, and you see it, I think you see the, the schism even greater there because uh, a young guy who, who uh, is given a, you know, whether it's a weight bar or an erg, or even is being taught to, to row in the beginning, what do they want to do? They want to impress everybody and pull hard. Doesn't matter about the technique. Yeah. The young girl, there's all this other stuff going on. I don't want to look tough because I don't, you know, the whole grunting thing. You know, you look, you saw that in women's tennis. I mean, the, like Monica Sellis, who was an incredible tennis player, was re, just reamed about the fact that she would grunt when she would hit a ball. I mean, it's come along, but I'm, I'm hearing it even recently. Uh, I love tennis and I watch it a lot, but I hear, I've even hear, heard commentators a little bit now about the, a female who's hitting the ball hard and grunting and someone being annoyed by it. And yet, and yet the, you know, the, the men's uh, match comes on and they're doing the same. So there's all this, so there's a whole social dynamic thing. I think the females have to deal with the judgment that a guy does not. And so, and you see that I think much greater at the junior level when they're being introduced to something that's much harder than they've ever done before. And the anxiety of, of you know, 
having to pull really hard on the erg and perform. I've talked to other junior coaches, you know, you know, my the girls are like, don't fall, they don't sleep the night before, they're sick to their stomachs, all this stuff, this very this anxiety um, that comes with that, that performance. And certainly I think that if they are passionate about the sport and they stay with it, they ultimately figure out how to manage it. Well, I hope they do. I, I can, I can like, I can, I can like feel, you know, we're, we're 600 miles apart right now on a zoom and I could feel your energy and your positivity of the sport. And, and as I'm listening to you talk, I'm, I'm like reminded of the era that you grew up in and you're approaching and look, I know age we're being funny here, but you're approaching 50 years in the sport, right? Like you're, you're approaching that number and there's not that many people that have made it a career that long, right? They haven't, they haven't been in the sport that long. And that's applauding, right? That's not like a negative. What has kept you loving it so much? Like what, what is it that has kept you doing this day in and day out? And then having the gut punch of, you know, being released from the collegiate level and then having, you know, those two or three years of like, all right, I'm going to, I might stick around high school rowing. Like what has kept you in it? That's a good question. I, I have to come back to the people I've met, right? I have um, certainly the women that I rode with. We, you know, the core of our Olympic eight have, have rode together with the Heather Charles since 1981. Oh. Yeah. And, and also women there. So we have two, eights that race 1980 rowing club and itazuni rowing club there were so many of us after the after 1980 that wanted to keep going that we had to form two clubs because you can you could only get one entry at the head of the charles in an event so we formed two clubs that we maintain and there's a, a core of men and women from that group that still race at the head of the charles but in um I and mean, we've had uh um, for many years, so up, what was it, 2000, okay, in 2000 was the last year. So we raced in the championship eight through 2000. Oh my God. And we were doing, we stayed in, we stayed in the top 10 and we said maybe, uh, yeah, there were some times where I got in a lot of trouble with some college coaches because I would be uh, one time I was passing a college crew and I said to them, you, just, you, you should be embarrassed because we're all, you know, 20 years older than you. What are you letting wow. us pass this for? So, um, but anyway, we decided to have a reunion of the 1980 boat in 2000. Yet everybody, and everybody came back. And in a couple of the women in the boat kept saying, Holly, you know, we should drop to the master's level. We should drop to, I said, no, until we, I think until we get out of the top 15, I think we should just stay there. Um, why, why we want to race the most competitive. It doesn't matter that we don't win. I want to be in the most competitive event. So everybody kind of stayed with me on it. <laughs> we got the band back together. And at this point, there were a couple of women who, who were no longer racing due to, they had had injuries, whatever families, you know, went off. And, um, we came in last, <laughs> we were past so many times I couldn't see straight. It was, I was laughing. I was laughing at the end. And then at, at the end, I kind of looked at it and I said, uh, all right, so I guess we're going to the Masters event next year. Did you ever win the Masters event? Did you we ever? Did, yeah. So we run the Masters and then we won the Senior Masters. And now we're now 
Val, interestingly enough, what is it? The grandmasters. It's so freaking competitive at that level. It's gotten, because we don't train together. We don't row together. We literally get together the day before the race. Uh, we go out for a spin on the Charles just to make sure the boat, the rigging is right. And we race, that's it. But now you've got these clubs, you know, that, um, uh, what, what is, uh, you know, that women who, it's great, it's great. These women who have now come of age either through college and they had their families and they've come back to rowing and they're hardcore now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're hardcore. And, and um, college, this it's called college, I think college boat club. They're from the Seattle area. And one of the women in that boat, I coached when we, when I was at Radcliffe who, you know, again, when we had that novice uh, event there who won a national championship and that, and then she went away from rowing and she's come back and she's totally into it now. So it's, it's so competitive at that level that, um, you know, we, I think we won it once the gram and now we, I think we were fifth. I don't even remember fourth or fifth. It was not last year was not a good year for me. I was like, kind of like, Oh my God, I could barely get through the race. It's hard because I'm juggling high school kids. Now I have some alumni boats and I'm, got, I'm having to ride from one boat. It, it's, it's a whole lot of, it's a lot of work for me because I'm, I'm the local and, you know, I organize it, kind of help organize everything. And it's just, uh, yeah, it was, it was a hard year plus COVID and ugh, I'm just, yeah. Holly, you're, you're a trip. I mean, you <laughs> are a trip. I, it's like I, the energy energizing bunny, right? You know, it's like, you're fascinating. So there's, so I take a lot of notes in these and uh, there's a couple of key things that you said that really are sticking with me. And the story that you tell is just fascinating. Um, one thing that really just struck me is you said that you wanted to stay in the most competitive race possible. And I just got back into training with a friend of mine two years ago. And we were getting really serious about it. And I said, hey, we should just race the men's masters double. We should stick to that. And he says, no effing way. We're racing the best. And I was like, dude, come on. Like, I don't want to work that hard. I got three kids. I got a business. I like, it's too much. And we were in the men's open double at the Charles. And it wasn't until I finished the race, we got 10th or 9th. That's and good though, right? It's great. It's great. Yeah. Uh, listen, we, we trained hard. We're 36 year old men yeah. racing a bunch of, you know, tough guys. And um, it wasn't until then I'm like, you know what? He was right. You know, yeah. he's right. And what a difference that makes for everything else in your life. Right. And I don't think you understand that. Like everything, it's not, not everything becomes easier, but you really put life into perspective. And as rowers or as athletes, like, I think that we need that at every age level. Or, 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 or you miss out on what life is really all about. And yeah. you're doing it up until 2000. I mean, you're, you're in your late 30s and 40s and you're racing a bunch of 19, 20, 22 year olds. <laughs> and, and everybody's like, Holly, please, please, let's go to the masters. I said, not until we get like below, because we, we were in the top 10. I mean, why would we go down there, right? Amazing. I mean, At the Charles? To be, amazing. to be in the champ eight, in the top 10, 12, that kind of, to me, that was, that was, I wanted to be there. I wanted to yes. be able to take on these, these guys and see what we could do. 
Um, <laughs> then after our bargain basement <laughs> performance, I was like, okay, okay, now it's time. But you know, but I guess, I guess your perspective, right? Like you weren't in your twenties anymore. You were laughing. You were enjoying the moment because like yeah. you said, it's about the people. That's why you yeah. stayed this yeah. so long, right? It's about the people. Holly, you're, you're approaching 50 years in the sport. Uh, when are you going to quit? When are you going to hang it up? When are you going to be done with this thing? Well, I, I don't know. That's a good question. I, I don't, I'm not financially stable enough to stop. <laughs> so I don't want my employers to know that they'll be all be listening to this, but um, uh, I still love it. You know, I think as long as I'm physically and mentally able to do it, I'll, I'll keep doing it. Um, I have to tell you, COVID was a tough time to keep a program running and it really, sure. it just sucked the life out of me. Uh, I only, honestly, only feel in the last, this summer, feel like I've started to haven't, if you had interviewed me any earlier than right now, I, I probably wouldn't have this, the energy level I have because I just was in a, just a fog uh, and had to just work incredibly hard to keep, we, we kept going, we wrote singles, I begged, barred, and stole every single I could find. Uh, a fun story. I have good friends with Ann, Ann Martin, who rode a uh, single in the 88 Olympics. Mm -hmm. And um, she lives in England now, but I knew her, her parents, her single was sitting in a garage in Concord, Massachusetts. We were looking for singles. I wrote Ann. I said, could we borrow it? She was like, sure. We've had that it says it's got the Olympic rings on it. Linda Murray built it for Ted Van Dusen. It's Van Dusen, yeah. 88 Olympics on it. I put 88 on it, so we put a name on it. That, that's the kind of stuff. People, somebody I coached at BU owned a single. We got 17 singles to be able to put on the water 17. and kept those kids rowing. <laughs> I feel like, you know what? I feel like you know everybody in the sport. <laughs> like, you must know everybody. Well, not everybody, but close. I, I, I was, I mean, I, I've met some people. I, I, I coached uh, Matthew Pinson's wife uh, at Radcliffe. She rode uh, in novice, second novice eight, I think, at Radcliffe. So I was over with the BU crew um, sitting on the, uh, Henley Royal sitting, you know, for practice along the course. And Demetra runs by and goes, Holly, next thing I know, you know, I, I'm going to come over to, to the UK in a couple of summers. And she said, anytime you come over, let me know. Matthew has a house, you know, it's crazy. But that's what's, this is the cool part about rowing. It's got to be. And then maybe other sports are like this. But what I tell, um, we were just talking about this the other day in a coaches meeting. And I said, you know, what I tell the athletes when we go to a regatta, this is how you play it. It's there's someone who needs help. I don't care if it's the boys team, our novice team, your arch rival, something's happening that you can change what's happening, what they're doing, you help them. Because that's what you do in the sport of rowing. You support even your toughest competitors. If they're on the, uh, if they're on the dock and it's too windy and they're having trouble landing, and you're standing there, I don't wanna see you walk away, I wanna see you walk over and pull that oar in. Cause that is what the community of rowing to me means. You are always there for each other regardless. And I think that's what happened with 1980. We all had to galvanize together because of this incredible loss we had and it's still there. We had a reunion last year. We had 60 odd people show up for it. 
the Thursday before the head of the Charles, obviously it was delayed a year. And it was an incredible experience. And those emotions are still really strong. It's really tight. Now, of course, we're all at the age where we better start doing these every five years, not every 10 years, so we can make sure we see everybody. But, um, but that's, well, that's what I've gotten out of rowing. <clears throat> and I don't see, you know, I don't see people maybe other than at the head of the Charles, but that's a great reunion time. Wow. And, uh, you know, Monica Trinnell, who's now running for, you know, uh, a, a Senate seat out in Montana and, and she reaches out. Now, I didn't coach Monica, but I know who she is and I know what she did and what she accomplished in the sport. So immediately I wrote, said, go for it. You know, this is, this is the kind of stuff that I think is that the sport generates that uh, you're part of this family, regardless of the fact that you, even if you haven't coached that person or rode in a boat with them, you know what they've gone through. We all know this, this is a very, very tough sport. Uh, you know, the amount of time you put into it that for that one second of glory, the number of times it's a disaster or it's a negative or a bad workout or whatever, I think far outweigh the the positives, but you keep coming back to it because you know everybody's in the same situation, and you can appreciate that. That's that's what I've gotten out of it, and that's that. You asked me, that's why I stayed into it because of the because of the people that I um, I met along the way, and and also the the individuals that I have coached. You know, Holly, I got to tell you, there's I've done a lot of these. You, you're you're number one hundred three, and uh, I think I'm. You would think after all these interviews or after all the time you've spoken to these people, these coaches, these athletes, you'd stop learning something. But no, I, I'm learning more and more. And I'm I'm falling more in love with the sport. The more I talk to folks in the industry, the more I fall in love. You said you were an armchair athlete. You met some random person at a, at a, at a, at a party in like 1972, 1973, and got you in the sport. And now you're probably one of the most badass coxswains in the history of American rowing. You had Tiff Wood in front of you knitting. You, you had Harry Parker not saying a word to you uh, along the banks of the Charles. And then you had the 1980 crew. You, you had glory taken away from you and you still push forward. Holly, I can't thank you enough. This has been a wonderful interview. And I really hope you enjoyed it. Oh, it, I, I did. I, I have to say, I don't do many of these, but this uh, this was easy, Alex. It was easy to do it. And, um, you know, I, I actually did a very long interview with a young high school uh, boy in New York. He was doing a, uh, he's in a video um, class and mm -hmm. they had to do a project for their senior thesis. And somehow he came on, he stumbled on the boycott. I don't know. I don't really, it's how bizarre. So he asked me if I would interview with him. And he, um, we spent like two hours wow. on an interview. He won, he won the competition. It was called the Broken Rings. He made a poster. He did everything. It was pretty amazing. But uh, I was so, but he was, his interviewing style, very similar to yours, it kind of, kind of kept, making sure it didn't get too far off and um, took notes and seemed to be a, a student and listened well. And that's when you, uh, I think you enjoy talking to people when you feel like you've got the, you've got someone listening. 
Well, you know what? You're going to have a lot of people listening to this one. I can guarantee you. Uh, this is a hell of a story. Anyone tuning in, um, we'll leave a link here and also a way to get a hold of Holly. And hopefully you will see her racing down in the Senior Masters 8 as a coxswain. I am for sure. Grandmaster, uh, Grandmasters 8. Grandmasters, I got it wrong. Right. Hey, Grand, um, we're at the top. Um, I don't know how far we can go after this. <laughs> this is as far as you go. Hopefully you win this year. And I'm going to make sure that my children are on the banks watching you come down this race course this year. Holly, thank you for being here. And more from us next week, we're gonna be continuing this theme of talking to high school coaches around the country. Tune in next week, we'll see you. Thanks, Alex.